0: Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, I've got uh, really two confessions. One is I don't know whether I'm halfway into this research or halfway out. So if, uh, if you'll give me some consolation there. Also I have a lot of ground to cover and so I have to cover it quickly or else they'll get the cane and pull me off of there. So uh, I'm going to be going over quite a bit of material and pretty speedily. Bear with me on that. When Mike Malone claimed in his now classic book The Battle for Butte, hard to believe that that was 40 years ago that he published that, at the beginning of big money's domination of Butte's mining and politics began in 1883-1884. He was referring to the early transformation of small freebooter mining into highly capitalized industrial operations. He was also referring to the growing political power that came with it. More precisely, he was referring to Marcus Daly's opening of his copper smelter in his new town of Anaconda and William A. Clark's parallel development of his butte mining properties. Both men came to be among the billionaires of their day. They also came to dislike each other so intensely they would royal Montana politics in unimaginable ways. The Clark-Daly feud erupted a few years later, 1888-1889, when Daly may or may not have deliberately influenced Clark's defeat as Montana territorial congressional delegate. Clark saw the election as a stepping stone to becoming Montana's first U.S. Senator. Whatever Daly's true intentions, Clark blamed him for his loss and launched the early stages of the War of the Copper Kings. Clark would win his prize Senate seat 12 years later in 1900, but not until his reputation was so besmirched that this guy, Mark Twain, declared he is as rotten, rotten a human being as can be found anywhere under the flag. Daly was no less guilty of manipulating politics, but unlike Clark, he never harbored political ambitions. In their efforts to outdo each other, Daly and Clark began accumulating newspaper properties. Newspapers were the prime media of the day, and they were held in much higher esteem than they are today. Their influence was crucial to swaying the popular vote, which in Butte was mostly democratic. And they were not above using money, ethnic appeal, half-truths, and malice to do it. There were, of course, consequences. One was control of Montana's newspaper press. The so-called War of the Copper Kings led to the Anaconda Copper mining's, Mining Company's domination of the Montana press for more than a half century. Malone and, his, and press historian Dennis Swibold date the origins of the so-called Kept Press to Daly's financing and John H. Durston's founding of the Anaconda Standard in 1889. And I don't have a pointer, but Durston is the second from the right, toward the back with the bowler hat. Durston and the Standard exemplified a new style of newspapering. He was college educated. This picture is the founding faculty of Syracuse University. And he made the Standard the Pacific Northwest premier paper. But there was a downside. As Malone said, the appearance of the standard signaled an ominous fact that few recognized at the time. Mining money was seeping into and beginning to contaminate the workings of a free press. Because Durston and the standard depended on Daly's money, they were under his thumb. Eventually, Clark would control other newspapers in the same way. It's my contention, that Malone and Swibold are correct to date the most conspicuous development leading to ACM domination of Montana's newspaper press in 1889, that is, with the onset of the Clark-Daily feud and the rise of the Anaconda Standard. But the seeping of mining money into Montana journalism, in fact, came a decade earlier, as did the transition to Durston-style sophistication. More, moreover, political influence that helped enable the Clark De La Feud had origins not with bribing legislators or swaying enough Irish votes, but with a man named Lee Mantle, a Republican whose constituents sometimes tipped the balance. Now, this picture is 1887. I'm going to refer to uh, by 1880. Butte was on the threshold of growth that would make Montana's major urban center, make it Montana's major urban center. Cosmopolitan, raucous, giddy, and attracting investment, the town had a gambler's mentality. Gold, silver, and lead were plentiful, but the real treasure lay in copper, which ran 50% pure in some veins. Electricity was revolutionizing American life, and vast quantities of copper were needed. The area's gold plasters, discovered as early as 1856 and developed seriously after 1864, played out within five years. Prospectors had noted rich quartz outcroppings on Butte Hill, but the area was isolated and had no railroad. The town almost vanished in the early 1870s, but as new methods for processing quartz quartz loads were perfected, Butte came alive again. Investment in Butte manifested itself in large smelting works, deeper mines, and population growth. As it did, communication and transportation developed proportionately. And these things nourished newspapers. By 1879, the Telegraph linked Butte to the rest of the world. And the Utah Northern, my apologies again, Uh, The Utah Northern Railroad's first train arrived on a bitterly cold night in late December 1881. This is actually Idaho Falls, but it's the only picture I could find of the Utah Northern. (laughs) Soon Butte would be linked to the Northern Pacific at Garrison Junction and later to Helena. Everybody's probably familiar with this photo. Between 1864, the year Thomas Demsdale established the Montana Post, Montana's first and, mo- and arguably most famous early newspaper. Note how the bookstore overshadows the fact that it's also a newspaper office. In 1881, founding year for Butte's first Republican newspaper, The Inner Mountain, some two dozen Montana newspapers have been tried. Of course, 14 were operate, well, uh, of those, 14 were operating in 1880, including four dailies, all in mineral-rich southwestern Montana. A mobile profession, anyway. Newspapering operated like early mining. Men moved in and out of newspaper work like miners floated from camp to camp. When a new camp did well, founding of one or more newspapers came quickly. Sometimes a paper attracted men with no newspaper experience at all, and few newspaper people stayed put. Sorting out a who's who and who was where when for pioneer journalism is complicated. Even newspaper ownership was complicated, but most became partnerships, whether between brothers or men who had just met, partnership was the most frequent business structure. Such was the case for James H. Mills, a Union Army veteran who came west after the war and has been referred to as the father of Montana journalism. Mills got a start on Dimsdale's Montana Post. He had no previous newspaper experience, and he partnered with his brother, John S. Mills, in 1869. Mills founded the New Northwest, a Republican paper in Deer Lodge. Butte was within a horseback ride, and when he was on one such trip in 1875, some leading citizens asked him to start a newspaper there. They offered him $1,100 in subsidy. He and his partner at the time, Harry Kessler and Horace Brown, took the offer a new paper in Butte might prove profitable, and as Mills said, if we didn't do it, someone else would. Fittingly, they named the paper The Butte Miner, and began publication in June 1876. Mills soon returned to Deer Lodge to let his partners manage the miner, but a year later, Kessler sold his interest to Brown, and a year after that, that is, 1878, Mills sold his interest to none other than William A. Clark, John Noyes, Marcus Daly, and others. Mills was a Republican, and with him out, the miner became Democratic politically. Here it seems was the first seeping of mining money into Butte journalism, for Clark never relinquished his ownership in the paper. Such things did not go unnoticed. Lee Mandel, who played an important role in the Clark-Daily Feuds a decade later, was Butte's first telegrapher, which inspired his newspaper interest. Born in Birmingham, England in 1851, Mandel was the seventh child of a widowed mother and a Mormon convert. Mary Susan Mandel sailed to America with Lee, then 13, and settled in Utah in 1864. She grew disillusioned, however, and soon renounced the faith. She placed Lee on a ranch where he worked until he was 16. Soon after, he signed on as a teamster for the Union Pacific Railroad, then building furiously to complete the transcontinental line. In this famous picture. After witnessing the Golden Spike Ceremony at Promontory in May 1869, Lee may be in this picture for all we know, but he was only 18 at the time, so he probably got pushed to the back. After witnessing the golden spike ceremony, he drifted north to Idaho, learned telegraphy, and became a stage line manager and postmaster. Clearly, he knew the value of communications. Prosperous by 1877, Mantle liquidated his interests and moved to Butte to open a local office for Wells Fargo. Eager, handsome, and not a little loquacious, Mantle quickly found favor. He expanded into freighting, fire insurance, and publishing. At 5 feet 10 inches tall, uh, ten inches, he was tall for his time. He was a gifted orator, and he had the distinguishing characteristic of possessing one blue eye and one brown eye. And believe it or not, if you, if you can see, you may be able to see it, but if you get close enough, you'll see that his right eye is actually darker. Than his, uh, than his left eye in this black and white photograph. Always well-groomed and sharply dressed, he commanded respect. He was also shrewd and ambitious. Mills held public office too, but Mantle was a new breed, who saw journalism as a means to loftier goals. Founding a second paper in Butte was a wise move. Butte was soon to be Montana's most populous city. So in February, 1881, the Territorial Legislature carved Silverbow County from sprawling Deer Lodge County and designated Butte as its county seat. Now, politics were truly local, and Mandel embraced them. Elected alderman in 1880, he would become Butte's mayor, serve three terms in the Territorial Legislature, become its speaker, and one day become US Senator from Montana. His newspaper, The Inner Mountain, helped him every step of the way. So did his Republican base. And curiously, so did Marcus Daly. Uh, It doesn't look very inviting today, but in that day and age before pictures and like that, it was. When first published, The Inner Mountain was capitalized at $20,000, an indication of how Montana newspapering was quickly moving away from small subsidies and shoestring budgets. The first issue appeared in March 1881 when Mantle, with Mantle as business manager. 2,000 shares have been subscribed at $10 each. But when many investors dropped out, Mantle acquired their stock, and he soon controlled the paper. The Intermountain made an impact. That same year, the Butte Miner Publishing Company was incorporated and capitalized at $14,400. Significantly, among the corporate officers was J.R. Clark. Sorry for the quality of this picture, but I tried to point out Clark is up there right underneath the arrow. uh, Obviously, this is a latter-day photo, but nonetheless, uh, at least you get to see a little bit of what he looked like. So was J.R.'s role as treasurer. One of W.A. Clark's two brothers, J.R. handled all his brother's banking operations. Control of the purse cemented Clark's interest in Butte Newspapering. Innocent enough at the time, Clark's newspaper ownership set the stage for disaster. Within a generation, most of the state's major journals, including Clark's newspaper properties, would fall under Anaconda Copper Mining Company control. But in the early 1880s, competition was plentiful, perhaps too plentiful for Mantle's taste. And it was a rascally ex-Confederate who threatened to make his newspaper life miserable. In this picture, Freeman looks a little like Tom Hanks' soccer ball, Wilson. <laughs> in the movie Castaway. <laughs> I guess. I, I, you know. Anyway. Lee Freeman was best known as the publisher of the Frontier Index, the famous press on wheels that followed the Union Pacific construction camps west across Nebraska and Wyoming in the late 1860s. Angry at Freeman, railroad men burned him out at Bear River City, his last stop on the UP. But he went on to Utah Utah, to make more enemies. He settled in Ogden for five years. Then he moved on to Montana, where he would soon combine his interests into a single newspaper called the Intermountains. An undeniable newspaper talent, Freeman was cut from the mold of free-for-all journalism. He was an interloper, a perfect candidate for jerks in Montana history. He was also a humorist of sorts, a tall tale-teller, and an unreconstructed racist. He had an unlimited capacity for antagonizing the community in which he published, and he did it again in Butte. When Freeman left Utah, he found the Utah Northern Line to Montana, first, and first Public, he followed that line, and first published and resurrected the Frontier Index in August 1879, even though his press and equipment was still on the road. <clears throat> his wife, Ada Freeman, was a capable newspaper woman. In Ogden, she had won favor with the Mormons, although league soon ruined that. When he came north in summer eighteen seventy nine, League left his work of moving the presses and equipment to Ada. Tragedy struck, however, when Ada was killed in a gun accident. Somewhere north of Manida Pass, a shotgun fell from its restraining straps in the wagon's front wheel, into the wagon's front wheel and discharged buckshot into her hip. Transported to Butte, she died a few days later. Undeterred, Freeman continued it with his plans, and in April 1881, within weeks of Mandel starting the Intermountain, he announced he would now publish the Intermountains, which he claimed was the only genuine, true blood, thoroughbred, red hot, radical stub and twist, double distilled, triple rectified, stalwart Republican paper in Montana. Quite a statement for an unreconstructed Southern Confederate who had always claimed to be a Democrat. Distinguishing his paper with a hyphen between the two words and, of its name and adding an S to mountain, he cautioned the public, quote, against any publications bearing a similar name. <laughs> Freeman must have unnerved Mantle a bit, for Mantle wrote quickly to Frederick Lockley, who for seven years had been chief editor of the respected Salt Lake Tribune. Recently retired, Lockley had moved to a farm in Walla Walla. Mantle's appeal to Lockley made sense. Montana was Salt Lake City's hinterland. Before railroads, all journeys into Montana were difficult, but the most expeditious route was north from Salt Lake. Strategically located on the UP Railroad, it was an entrepot. It was no accident Butte's first telegraph, first railroad connection, and substantial outside capital for mining development came by way of Salt Lake. William Clark got his start hauling supplies from there. And a decade later, Salt Lake's Walker brothers developed Richard rich Alice mine in what came to be known, of course, as Walkerville. Even Marcus Daly came to Montana by way of Utah. Salt Lake afforded sophisticated urban amenities, including newspapers. When when Montana editors, editors looked for news in their exchanges, they looked especially to the Salt Lake Tribune. So, when Mandel cast about for an editor to help him fend off the likes of Lee Freeman, he turned naturally to Salt Lake City. He needed an editor, and he wanted one with demonstrated ability and proven party loyalty. He also needed someone available. Fred Lockley was a staunch friend of republicanism. He was proven, and his political contacts extended into the nation's capital. He had energy, drive, and zeal. Recently editor-in-chief of the Salt Lake Tribune, he was adapted to tough newspaper infighting, and he was available. Mantle began wooing Lockley in February and urgently kept after him. Lockley finally came in August to assume, as he said, the pen redactorial. Lockley's arrival signaled a new, more sophisticated phase in Montana newspaper, not unlike John Durston's arrival in Anaconda almost a decade later. As I said, the I is not very attractive to us today, but it was good-looking paper in the 1880s. News and editorial views still intermingled, but greater sophistication enhanced punch and persuasiveness. Incorporation also signified the business and political elite's understanding of press importance. Thus, in 1881, marked a turning point. A more ordered business organization encouraged a more exacting journalism. It also emphasized shrewd use of money and power. Extant copies of early Intermountain editions are scarce, but the paper's tenor and quality are apparent in those that do survive. A quality journal, it appealed to the more prosperous sort. It took a high moral tone. Both mining and politics received emphasis. Editorials were ardent but serious-minded. Churches and charities received ample attention, as did foreign affairs, legislative issues, and doings about town. Clean and neat Mandel's paper contrasted with the Butte Minor, whose typeface was cruder, and leaked Freeman's Inner Mountains, which was unevenly printed, full of typographical errors, and regularly substituted outlandish opinion for news. Both the Inner Mountain and the *Miner* recognized Freeman's brand of journalism for what it was, that of a polecat, and they steered clear of it. The *Miner* and the Inner Mountain took frequent pot shots at each other, but both journals ignored Freeman's paper. Lockley had much in common with Durston, even though their tenures in Montana never overlapped, and there's no evidence they ever met. Both were serious, both were erudite, both rarely drank, both were considered scholarly, both were thoughtful editorialists, and both came to grief. Durston later at the Butte Post, and Lockley sooner. Lockley's time at the Mountain was short. Alarms sounded when he began writing editorials opposing Silver as inflationary. Not a good idea in view. Mantle tried to explain the value of silver to local interests, but with no success. When more anti-silver editorials appeared, Mantle had to let him go. Still, like Durston, Lockley had represented a new, more polished breed of editor that contrasted with earlier days. Oh, there we go. <laughs> When Lockley left the paper, you're going to wonder what the heck am I doing here. When Lockley left the paper in 1885, Mandel's career was rising. In the early 1880s, he gained much by aligning with Marcus Daly. He and Clark were natural antagonists, owners of competing newspapers, opposed politically. They even sought uh, the loyalty of the same non Irish constituency. But Mandel's money was never a match for Clark's and Daly's. And as Jafar, distinguished as uh, disguised here as an old man in the Disney film Aladdin, says, You've heard of the Golden Rule, haven't you? When whoever has the gold makes the rules. Thus, when Mandel would come to grief because of it, and thanks to his own hubris. Mandel was first allied with Daly in 1888 when he added Republican votes to Daly's Irish ballots to sink Clark's election as <coughs> territorial delegate. The partnership continued when Daly helped Mandel get elected as Butte mayor in 1892. And when Daley's political muscle deadlocked the state legislature in 1893 to oppose Clark and led the governor to name Mandel as U.S. Senator. The Senate rejected this election, but Mandel did become U.S. Senator by 1895, but Mantle soon made a big mistake. So outspoken for Silver, he would back the Democrat, William Jennings Bryan, a pro-Silver man in the presidential election of 1896. Montana Republicans never forgave him for it. So when Daly no longer needed Mantle and abandoned him in the re- for re-election in 1898, Mandel lacked unified Republican backing. The apex of his career had come and gone. When when Daly, his health in decline, sold his properties to Standard Oil executives to form the behemoth Amalgamated Copper Company in 1899, Mandel would not only lose his Senate seat, but his newspaper as well. Amalgamated forced him to sell his beloved Intermountain in 1901. By 1907, Mantle's political career was over. By then, Clark had sold his newspaper interests to Amalgamated as well, setting the stage for 50 years of ACM domination of Montana's kept press. The seeds for that domination were planted in the late 1870s and early 80s, when Clark took financial control of the Butte Miner, when Lee Mantle rose to prominence as Marcus Daly's protege, and when raucous pioneer journalism grew more sophisticated, but no less dangerous and sinister. Thank you.